Hey guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Scroll. Uh, back in the office here at Ground Game again for Woo-hoo! the first time in a while. Uh, yeah, well, so we're here with your weekly knock activism wrap-up and recording in the same room. It feels great. Uh, <laughs> today we're going to be talking about some events that are going on at a nearby uh, low-income housing complex where one of our one of our Ground Game team members actually lives and is uh, doing some on-the-ground tenants organizing that we really need to uh, fill you guys in on. Uh, we're also going to be talking about some uh, some more information about the developments going on with HUD and the public charge movement that's going on there. Uh, we're also going to discuss briefly the uh, difference between a right to shelter versus an obligation to shelter and what some of the things that have been coming out of Sacramento and the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors uh, should be scaring you with. Uh, and then we've got a fun little reading series that Bushido's going to go into and I'm... Uh, Judging by the comments that he's made so far, really looking forward to hearing all about, uh, yeah, what what some uh, interesting uh, op-ed pieces from the New York Times uh, written by authors who do not really get full disclosure of who they are when their pieces are published. Uh, yeah, so uh, how's it going, Bushida? How are you uh, enjoying being in L.A.? Oh, it's uh, been good. Uh, we went out uh, canvassing today for Lorraine, which was yeah, pretty fun, um, which was nice because it was like less than 100 degrees, which is kind of a change <laughs> for me. Um, and it was good. Like, there was a lot of uh, Lorraine signs that I saw around, a few John Lee signs. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a, a close election, especially because it'll be so low turnout. But I'm still thinking Lorraine's going to win, but obviously we'll keep you all updated on that next week. Uh, again, we're we're delivering this one a little bit late because uh, we've had a lot of stuff going on. And one of the things you've been doing, and we're going to chat about <laughs> this at the top, uh, is you've been working as part of Bernie's advanced staff. Like, essentially yeah. got pulled into the gig econ- economy to be uh, <laughs> Uber for Bernie. So let's talk about that a little bit. Like, so what have you been doing, actually? Uh, yeah, so I've been volunteering with the with the Bernie Sanders campaign for, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders 2020. Um, basically, I, I got a call from the uh, guy who directs the motorcade. So part of a campaign uh, of this scale is that there are trips that are going on all over the place, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, constantly. And Bernie is flying back and forth across the country to go visit people in in various areas. He came out here to Los Angeles just a couple of weeks ago. And then immediately after his visit, and, you know, he spoke to the teachers from UTLA when they were having their convention up at the Westin Bonaventure in downtown. Uh, He spoke to, you know, there was a uh, grassroots uh, fundraiser that was held in Hollywood. Uh, There have been, and then there was like a, a big rally in Santa Monica. There are events all over the place here in Los Angeles. And then he immediately flew over to Detroit to get ready for the debates and also to go on that little uh, pilgrimage up to Canada in order to get uh, insulin for diabetics because yeah, uh, as, well, and, and there were some other some. It wasn't just for diabetics. There was people yeah, yeah. who were buying expensive medicines, but yes. going to Canada to get them for reasonable prices. Very for sure. And but the uh, the the insulin one was one of the ones that uh, struck close to home, uh, and it, it's it's just so just devastating how how screwed up that whole system is as you can. Uh, thoroughly yeah. test. But so uh, working with Bernie's staff, like the yeah. advanced staff, what are you all doing like on a daily basis? Like so, it, it, what's what's kind of your day look like? When yeah, you're yeah. That? So uh, as I was, uh, you know, getting too long witted in, in the introduction of this is that basically there have to be people who are affiliated with the campaign working as, uh, you know, contractors or staff or whatever, who show up to an area and they plan the whole visit. So they've got an itinerary. They know what time it's going to be for each event. They know how long it's going to take to get from one event to the next. They know where the cars are going to be pulling up to drop off Bernie, uh, where the cars are going to go like hang out and wait. 
and uh, you know be sage for the you know heading off to the next trip you got to know where the uh, where the gate is that you're going to be pulling into what the code is to get the gate open so you can have somebody there and uh, you know the security guy uh, can pop that gate open for you and wave you down to make sure you get into the right place there's a lot of yeah. coordination that goes into these events. It's incredible to see the amount of uh, campaign infrastructure that has to be dedicated toward making sure that these events go off without a hitch. And uh, as a driver in the motorcade, it was my job to basically navigate from point A to point B, uh, you know, be willing to, you know, not willing, but being able to make the uh, changes that are necessary when you know they decide. Oh, we're going to stop at this coffee shop on the mm-hmm. way because we've got to. You know, there's a phone call that the senator has to take, or because we need to. You know, we got out of one event a little bit early. We need to be able to refresh for a minute before we head off to the next one because, you know, these are jam-packed days. And oh my God, Bernie is a machine. Yeah, he just goes nonstop. It's incredible. The amount of energy that he has is just truly remarkable. I, I mean. Uh, Nina Turner was up on stage in Santa Monica at at the rally that they held there, and she made the comment that you know she used to walk around in three inch heels all the time, but then she started campaigning with Bernie, and she just can't keep up unless she puts on her Skechers. So, <laughs> yeah, it was it was amazing, and getting to be you know backstage at those events and participating and helping to make sure that things go off without a hitch, uh, you know, providing uh, the the basic. Uh, you you know you fill in a little bit for for like gopher duties in case like somebody you know, forgets a bag or they mm-hmm. don't have a charger or whatever else they weren't supposed to have them. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's these things that the uh, the unexpected things that need to be there but aren't necessarily always there. Like the, you you've got uh, volunteers who are able to get you know hop into a car and drive off and get something and meet them at the next location or whatever. But there's so much that goes on and you got to remember these people are like living out of hotels constantly. And that's it's everything is mobile all the time. You're moving around constantly. Everyone's on their phones. Batteries are dying. Yeah, it's just there's a lot going on, and it was a ton of fun. Yeah, and it's it's something I think when we talk about campaigns, when we think about them on a national level and like just on kind of any level, we have you know the candidate, and then we've also got like the two or three surrogates that we associate with the campaign, like the campaign manager, their comms person, whatever. Oh, but yeah. the, that's really just shorthand for the hundreds, if not thousands <laughs> of people who are volunteers and staff oh, yeah. who are actually making this happen because, you know, it's anytime you try and do any type of organizing, like somebody's actually got to be doing that work. Yeah. And when it comes to campaigns, it's even higher stakes and even like more pressure, it seems like. Um, but it's kind of cool that Bernie's campaign is doing what it can to keep volunteers involved. Yeah, and for just sure. Just reaching out to the community, talking to people, relying on local knowledge to get the stuff done. Um, and then also you get to like so, sort of see a preview of what's going to come out in the next day's media cycle when you like take him to Joe Rogan's podcast, which you did, <laughs> yes. which people probably hate you for. No, I'm actually – I think it was a good move going on, Joe. I'm not a fan of Joe Rogan by any stretch. But I think it was a good move for Bernie to go on there and get like a lot of views. But you kind of get this like – insider knowledge of what's oh, happening yeah. and it was a really low bar for entry seemingly. Yeah, I mean you just basically get contacted. They do some vetting to make sure that you're uh you know not going to do something untoward. Um but the the vetting process is it seems pretty straightforward and then it's you know are you able to commit to driving them around for multiple days in a row. Like people, uh, the volunteers that I w- was working with on these these last two trips, because I've actually now done uh, the motorcade twice, uh, the volunteers are fantastic. And they are dedicating a ton of their time to this because we, we were literally, this last trip, we were literally working on the campaign from Sunday 9 a.m. until 
oh, what was it? We were done, I don't know, like two o'clock on Wednesday. Oh, wow. And so we basically were doing full-time volunteer work uh, from, from dawn to dusk. The campaign had us up in hotel rooms alongside all the staff. Like It was, it, it was uh, a, a very immersive and intense experience and a uh, very satisfying one because, yeah. you know, getting to, you do spend a lot of time sitting in a car, uh, <laughs> like oh, the whole day. Um, <laughs> so you take what, whatever opportunities you can to get out and walk around a little bit, uh, which, you know, when, when Bernie gets going, he gets going. So you, you know, you know, you've got yeah. a little bit of time to, to stretch your legs. Um, but you, you spend a ton of time sitting in the car and then also, you know, I, I got to have fun getting very good at putting pins in Google Maps and then sharing those out with folks on Signal. Like, yeah. you know, that's it's it's how you coordinate and, you know, everyone's uh, adjusting on the fly. So you, there's a lot of hurry up and wait, but yep. it's, it's uh, when it gets going, it is intense. And when it's not going, you're like, whew, got a minute to breathe. Okay, yep. and ready for the next one. Um, <laughs> so honestly, it, it was a, an amazing experience and a ton of fun. I can't wait to do it again. Um, and it's just... It's truly inspiring. Like the number of the number of people, like when when Bernie is out and about around town, like uh, the first night in San Diego, he was just, uh, you know, he wanted to go for a walk and and uh, get to, you know, stretch his legs after the flight. So he was walking around and people were, I could hear them as I was, uh, you know, shadowing him in a car. I could hear the people on the street that were just like, oh my god, it was Bernie Sanders. Uh, and yeah, so that was like, that was actually the, the night where there was the, the video of uh, Bernie shooting some hoops yeah, and playing yeah. some skee ball. Uh, yeah, it, it was, uh, it, this has just been an amazing experience and I've been thrilled to be able to be a part of it. So nice. Good nice. stuff. Good yeah. stuff. Well, I was going to say on the subject of, of organizing and actually like making stuff happen, the Kingswood apartment, which is just down the street from where we're at, at the ground game office, uh, has been organizing against some massive yes. rent increases. So let's talk about that because. Uh, Charlie, who's a ground game member and like just a friend of everyone here and just yeah. a really fantastic person, um, you know, got a notice that his rent was going way up and immediately thought, wait, I know how to fight this. <laughs> so let's let's dig into this story a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So Charlie Peppers is one of our colleagues here at Ground Game. He lives at the Kingswood Apartments, uh, which is a low income building that's owned by the Michaels organization, which, which is, is a very like innocuous name for a very <laughs> evil company. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so yeah, so this they're they're located just east of Western over on Hollywood, uh, just on the street from us. And uh, this these the companies that operate these kinds of subsidized low income buildings. They're actually receiving, they don't just receive the rent from the tenants. Yeah. They receive subsidies from either the state or the county or whoever it is that is subsidizing this, the operation of these facilities. But whenever it's a low income building that has, you know, income requirements where you, if you make over a certain amount, you cannot live in that building. That's because a chunk of the rent that's being paid is being paid by someone else's, like the municipal organization that. Uh, of whatever level that is mm -hmm. that's subsidizing it. So, um, but sometimes uh, these companies want more than that. And that's kind of exactly what happened here. So back in May, Charlie and his neighbors all received written notice that their rent was going to be increasing by more than 20% within 60 days of the notice. Uh, one of the tenants uh, who is currently surviving off of a fixed social security disability income and has already had to ask her cousin multiple times to help her cover her rent is facing a whopping 32% increase. Wow. I mean, 
She's going from around eight hundred dollars to I think it's uh, um, what almost eleven hundred dollars. It's absolutely insane to see like, and this is if like if you know how little money Social Security pays out each month, you realize that people are literally having to make the decisions between whether they're going to be buying uh, food or they're going to be paying for their prescription drugs or if they're going to be paying for their rent to keep a roof over their head. Yeah. This is the kind of everyday decision-making process that is just the it, it's a factor of daily survival for people who are living in these kind of situations. And it's something we saw with the hillside villa tenants where oh, absolutely. We, we learned that when you have these affordable housing covenants, the landlords are often double dipping. They're yes. often taking tax breaks or getting tax subsidies that they shouldn't be earning, that they convert what should be affordable apartments into market rate apartments. Yeah. And nobody's really watching that. And then during the whole like government shutdown, we also learned about how a lot of these landlords who take Section 8 are just waiting for an excuse to evict people. Because yeah. if that federal funding doesn't come through, like if your rent check from, from the Section 8 program doesn't cover all of your rent, your landlord will just kick you out. Now, yeah. in, here in L.A., there are some protections for people in RSO yeah. buildings and like you can't be like you you didn't pay one month's rent and you're, now you're out. You've got like three months where you have like some sort of buffer. But these private organizations are essentially just um, engaging in rent-seeking behavior and using tax dollars to pad their profits. Absolutely. So back on July 31st, the Kingswood Tenants Association held a press conference in front of their building, and a number of press outlets came by to cover the story, including Fox 11 News, who carried it live in their morning news segment. Uh, It was actually a lot of fun to be there. I was holding up a sign and uh, standing in solidarity alongside a whole bunch of folks from Ground Game who all showed up. It was uh, started at 7 in the morning, so it was a a bit of an early presser for us, but you know, <laughs> got to do what you got to do, and yep. uh, it, it was it was great. And we had uh, Bill from uh, Power came out and uh, gave uh, an interview in Spanish uh, to one of the local Spanish language broadcasters. So, uh, one of the tenants told K- uh, Fox Eleven that there had been quote no conversation, just a slip, uh, just a slip of paper. And that piece of paper felt like a slap in the face. It felt more like an eviction notice, end quote. And today, uh, when you and I were out canvassing, you mentioned that we were right by one of the venues where you took Bernie. And this kind of like made the Twitter feeds because one of the Kingswood uh, tenants actually asked Bernie about this situation. Yeah, so this was at the temple up in Porter Ranch. Uh, Carla, who has been a long-term resident in Kingswood Apartments and is a leader in the Tenants Association, asked Bernie Sanders to help them during one of these uh, during that event. And uh, the event was specifically focused on housing affordability and homelessness, and how it was, uh, you know, utterly unacceptable that we live in you know one of the richest societies uh, in human existence, and yet we have rampant housing inequality and and people facing uh, living in poverty and and uh, facing eviction as a daily factor in their lives. Uh, and Bernie, Bernie said he was going to help. It is shameful. People are going without food so that they can pay to keep a roof over their heads. And I'd like to know, as president, because I know you're going to be president. Public, making a profit, and then of course, 
People were then homeless and have nowhere to stay. But these organizations are still making a profit because they're saying we are nonprofit organizations. But then they're making a profit off the backs of home. Hey, what we're gonna do? You don't have to wait for me to become president. We're gonna inquire about that uh, this afternoon. So then that, you know, gave uh, a lot of uh, hope to these tenants. And then the next day uh, (laughs) they met with uh, the management from the Michaels organization and, you know, immediately were facing a whole bunch of pushback and uh, a a lack of promises. But eventually they did end up getting a uh, one of the managers who had driven all the way down from Sacramento to meet with them. Uh, because of the press coverage that this has been getting and because of the letters that have been shared mm-hmm. out on Facebook and on Twitter and everywhere else. Like, when you're the tenants, you can grab the press cycle and you are going to be the one that holds the power in that situation. Mm-hmm. These organizations do not want these things talked about because the more they get talked about, the more bad PR it is for these organizations and they desperately do not want that to happen. So uh, they had sent a manager all the way down from Sacramento to meet with the tenants, and they did get some promises that there was going to be some kind of a resolution uh, on the table by September 1st. Uh, And so that was on Wednesday morning where Charlie and Carla and a number of other folks came out to support them in solidarity uh, and as witnesses. And then that afternoon... (laughs) <laughs> they went. Well, I was going to say, so so far what yeah. the Michaels organization is promising is not no rent increases, Correct. we understand, but a more reasonable-ish yeah. standard for rent increases. Which, but even then, like, it feels like they're looking to turn over the building. It's yes. in a quickly gentrifying part of Hollywood, oh, like East Hollywood specifically. It's very prime real estate. Um, if they wanted to knock that building down and put something up, they'd get a bunch of density bonuses because they're super close to transit. They like, are. There's a lot of money to be made here, and I feel like the Michaels organization is looking at that and not really trying to secure the future of these tenants. Yeah, and so Charlie has been writing about this pretty extensively on Facebook, which has really been fascinating to be following along with um, and really being able to cheer him along uh, as as he's in this fight because it is a tough fight, and he is running up against some very powerful folks. Uh, One of the things that he described happening was he, he called them out on that when they said, hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to be able to find a more reasonable compromise of a more modest rent increase. And Charlie's like, well, that, you know, people are on fixed incomes. They've already depleted their savings in order to pay these rents that are already pretty unaffordable for folks. Yeah. And w- any kind of a rent increase is going to uh, be a, a virtual guarantee of eventual eviction and eventually becoming homeless because this is yep. the the last step. I mean, these are folks we, we talk about like 8502 and about safe parking. These are most of the folks in this building do not have cars. Yeah. They do not have that last line of defense that they can fall back on if their landlord is, you know, being uh, less than scrupulous and is working to get them evicted. Like it is there's nothing left for them if this. So it's it's a very dire situation and yeah. very And what are they what are they hearing from City Hall? Like what kind of help are yeah. they getting locally? Because like <laughs> Bernie Sanders, like he's on the campaign trail. Like if he wins the presidency, like there's yeah. a chance he could like alter yes. stuff in a couple of years. But like what is LA City Hall doing? As the senator from Vermont right now, he definitely can't do that much to help them. But ha. you would think 
that our local city council, who hold immense amounts of power, would be able to do something about this because they literally write the laws that govern how all of this works. Like, they can do a whole lot with the way that the city is renegotiating affordability covenants and everything else. But that same day after they had met with the managers from Michael's, uh, the Michaels organization, uh, Charlie and Carla went to City Hall for the Homelessness and Poverty Committee meeting which uh, council, member, council member Mitch O'Farrell, who represents the 13th uh, City Council District, which they live in, so they are He's his, our favorite council he member. He is our favorite council member. Uh, he sits there at the head of that committee, and uh, Charlie pointed out that he uh, folds his hands very neatly in front of him while he's listening to their, their, the questions and, and comments from concerned Angelinos. Um, but then when Charlie and Carla got up there and were able to talk, uh, Carla mentioned that Bernie was was agreeing to help with the fight. Mitch nodded and said, quote, I've been briefed daily about your building. This morning, I sent a letter to the Michaels organization asking them to decrease the rent to a reasonable amount. But I can't help you. And Bernie Sanders can't help you. Mitch. <laughs> Mitch. Mitch. Mitch, you Mitch. could. Yeah. You absolutely can help. You just choose not to. Well, and it's one of these things we were looking at with, um, I believe, 1482, where yeah. uh, one of the clauses in that law, with this is the uh, AB 1482, it's is the a possible bill, it's like, rent yet. freeze. Yes. Yeah, it's the, the possible rent freeze that might go through for like three years. But anyways, one of the clauses in there is when it comes to buildings like Kingswood that has an affordable housing covenant, when the landlord wants to sell – like their affordable housing covenants up and they're like, hey, I want to cash out. They have to give the state or municipality or county authority the ability to make an offer on the building. They don't have to accept it. It's not yeah. right of first refusal, but it allows the state or the municipality or the county to at least get a good market rate offer in there to try and save the building. Yeah. Um, with it, when it came to hillside tenants, like we were able to – put enough pressure on City Hall and on the Botts family that they're not evicting everyone. Correct. Instead, they're getting a huge payout to yes. continue what they're doing, and they'll be able to keep upping the rent. It's just that the city of L.A. is going to be paying that difference between yes. what the rent is at now and what it will be increased. And this is more just rent-seeking behavior for yeah. wealthy people who just want their money to be making more money. So Kingswood is going to be like a really interesting fight because the Michaels organization controls dozens of these buildings across the country. Like these, this is not like the only building they own. No. This is going to be happening nationwide. And there's a lot of states where there are even fewer tenant protections than what we have here in LA. Mm -hmm. And that's fucking scary. It is. And then the other thing to keep in mind here is that a lot of these uh, affordability covenants are, are they all were pretty much established at about the same period of time. Yeah. And they're all yeah. expiring weird, at the same time. Weird that it time. all happened like just after the Olympics. <laughs> like really strange that like all of a sudden <sighs> then the city of L.A. realized people can't afford to live here. Yeah. So anyway, there's there's going to be a lot of this going on here in L.A. So uh, keep your eyes open and watch what's going on around you. And when you see your neighbors uh, going through situations like this, uh, do whatever you can to help. Yeah, and uh, you know we're we're helping out. Uh, no Olympics run their uh, homes, not hotels. Canvas. They're yeah. coming out of the ground game office. So if you want to do some door knocking for they're that, actually doing that right now yeah. as we're recording. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of stuff coming in the near future. Uh, the split rolls is probably going to be on the ballot. So yes. that's a way for us to fix Prop 13, Article 34. Yeah, there's yeah Article 34, which like again, I, Scott Weiner, I'm going to hand it to him on that one. Yeah. Like that's a good move. It so, is. 
Um, there's a lot of exciting stuff that might be happening, but the forces of capital are lining up to stop it. Yes. So this is going to be a slog. Like, unfortunately, we at Ground Game can't be the only ones to carry the no. ball. So anyone who Come wants to get help involved, us. yeah. <laughs> oh, seriously, just talk to your neighbors. Yeah. Like, that's literally what Charlie did is he got together with his neighbors was like, yo, we all have a vested interest in not getting evicted. Let's all work together. Yeah. And everyone was like... Let's do that. And now they have a tenant union. Yeah, they had hundreds of works. people. They had hundreds of people retweeting and, re- and yep. sharing their letter to the Michaels organization. And just as a quick side note, the letter that Mitch O'Farrell sent to the Michaels organization is weak. it's pretty weak, yeah. man. It doesn't. Uh, why bother? Yeah. Why bother? What was the point of that? But so we'll, we'll keep you all updated as things progress. And hopefully we can pull a win out of this one. Um, it, it, we'll have to see. It's going to be. And we know that when this fight is over, there'll just be another one on the horizon. The Michaels organization is <laughs> yeah. going to get less greedy. But let's uh, shift our focus now to uh, a different letter. You might remember about a month ago, yeah. uh, we and Power were asking people to sign a letter uh, fighting against HUD's proposed change to the public charge. Correct. We got 25,000 people to Hell send in unique yeah. letters. Now, here's the reason we did that. Because Keep if you went to the together. forum, yeah. well, if you went to the forum, you would see that it would have like a short intro and then a bracketed line that said, fill in your own stuff, and then like the same finishing line. Yeah. Under federal law, if you submit a public comment that is at least 30% unique, they have to respond to it individually. Yeah. So that was Bill Prislecki's <laughs> like genius plan, was let's submit thousands of unique comments that HUD now has to respond to individually. And yep. then when they don't, you as the person who sent in the comment that did not get responded to have standing to sue them. Yep. So this is an attempt because we know that like – those letters aren't going to end up on Ben Carson's desk and no. be like, oh, my gosh, this public charge <laughs> rule that I wanted. Like, let's not it's change so that. It's so deeply unpopular. Yeah, no. So the, people this don't is, want this. Yeah. This is an attempt to hopefully be able to stop them from implementing this rule to buy the lawyers some time to argue against this to. Yeah. I don't know. At least delay it until yes. like Trump dies of an aneurysm in office and like <laughs> we can move forward as a country. Uh, but so what public charge is, public charge is. A legal term, it's used in immigration law, and it refers to someone who is uh, basically dependent on the government. So, like, if you're an immigrant who literally can't work because you're disabled or – for whatever reasons, and you're accessing food stamps and like Medicare and all of that, st- or Medicaid rather, uh, then you're considered public charge. Yeah. The rule change under HUD would alter that definition. So it's not people who are like 100% dependent on the state to pay their bills. It would be anyone who's undocumented and uses any service. This applies to people in public housing because about 60% of the people who live in public housing across this country have one or more family members who are undocumented. There's a lot of mixed immigration status families. There's a lot of like kids who are citizens and one parent who's not. Right now, the way that like HUD deals with that is if you have an undocumented person in your uh, public housing unit – you're not capped at the 30% rent, which yeah. like they cap it at 30% of what your, your income is. Yes. You're capped at 60%. So you're necessarily rent burdened. Yes. They have – they also try and evict you. Like that's become a common theme that we've seen with HUD and with HACLA. When people don't have documentation, the government wants to get them out, not just charge them more money. Which they, is really weird because they are charging them more money, which means that they're already collecting more rent – from a mixed status family than they would be from a 
you know, a family that wasn't mixed status. The, like if the cruelty is the point. Yeah, it's exactly. So it's like this is not something that is done to increase the, uh, you know, financial standing of HUD or of Hacklow or any or other organization. Like this doesn't make it easier on their bottom line. It doesn't make it so they can afford to house more families. Yeah. All it does is push people out on the streets. Yeah. And, and we're talking 50 or 60,000 kids. Yeah. Across, across the, the country, country that could end up being coming homeless because of this this poten- potential change in the rules. Yeah, it's it's really insane, especially when you look at the state of these buildings. Like Mar Vista Gardens oh, is yeah. not in good like repair. It's in really bad repair. The government, the county, they're not putting money into these buildings. They're not fixing them up year over year. But so basically, Ben Carson's HUD is setting up to evict tens of thousands of families. We're trying to stop them. That change will be coming soon. HUD is kind of delaying and playing coy about when they're actually going to release it. Because of course they are. Because the day they release it is the day they get served with like dozens of lawsuits. <laughs> so they're really trying to make sure that they, they do it right. I think they want to do it in a quiet way so people almost don't notice. We're not going to let them get away with that. Uh, and we'll definitely keep you updated on that one. Because again, 25,000 unique comments on There's what n- should be an esoteric <laughs> policy change is not normal for the way the federal government operates, and we want to keep doing that to them. Yeah, we want to keep making them have to justify every single thing they're doing. We want to catch them with their own stupid rules and stop yeah. them from doing just pointless, pointlessly cruel and stupid things to just harm people. There's no yeah. good reason to make this charge. Their argument is, well, this saves money for the American taxpayer, and it's like— Which is completely bullshit. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Sorry to be completely frank there, but no, this yeah. does not save money for the taxpayers. This makes it more difficult for HUD to provide housing. Yep. Ugh, God, yep. Just, no, it's a, it's a dumb change, and uh, we'll, we're going to do what we can to stop it. And we'll keep you all involved, uh, keep you up to date, and we'll let you know how you can get involved in the future because there will be a fight in the future coming forward. Yes, there will. Um, but, you know, consider this part of us just organize, uh, like <laughs> educating you on stupid legal phrases that are being used to harm people for literally no good reason. It's just being cruel. Now let's talk about another sort of being cruel thing. And Chris knows where I'm going with this one. But so our favorite county board member, and it's not Catherine Barger, even though she's the only Republican up there. She's not as favorite as Mark Ridley Thomas, Mr. T himself. He has uh, kind of entered into a Twitter foray and also like a public relations foray where he's pushing the idea of a right to shelter. So, But for a little bit of context in this, he and uh, the mayor of Sacramento, uh, Steinberg? Yeah, Steinberg. uh, The two of them are both on something of the equivalent of like a blue ribbon committee. On well, dealing yeah, with well, homelessness because, that yeah, Gavin well, Newsom, Newsom, Newsom reformed a committee that yes. he already had. Like the, the mayor of Sacramento was already heading up a group that was studying homelessness in California. And Gavin Newsom's like, I'm going to make it a blue ribbon <laughs> committee. And even the mayor of, Sa- of Sacramento, like the day it was announced, came out and was like, I don't know how this is different than what I've been doing. But now I'm doing that, too. So Cool. Yeah. And then now Mr. T's on it. But also Mark Ridley Thomas seems especially ill educated on what's actually happening in the state. Like when yeah. the when the loss account, when the point in time count came out, he's like, wow, these numbers are crazy. I can't believe this. I'm shocked. I'm, yeah, I'm shocked. And you're like, dude, you're the <laughs> one in charge of this. You're literally supposed to be leading the state. Nothing said here should shock you. No. Like I, maybe he was playing it up for effect. I don't know. But his new thing, and it, so one of the ways that New York City and New York State differs from California when it comes to like people who are unhoused is in yeah. the state of Cal, uh, state of New York, you have what's called a right to shelter. You cannot be left out in the cold, literally, 
if you don't want to be. So that means that the state of New York at this point rents tens of thousands of hotel rooms across the city. Yeah, Yeah, and basically has turned them into de facto shelters. Like there's a good Planet Many episode that like looks at these rooms and how like you might be in like a a four-star Hilton and like one whole floor of that building is basically being used as a shelter. The beds are really crappy beds. They've taken out all the nice fixtures. Uh, The people who are staying in those shelter rooms have to leave by like 9 a.m. and they can't come back until like 6 p.m. Like you have to be out the whole day. You're not allowed to be there. Not allowed to bring food with you. So like if you have some takeout that you want to go eat in your room, not allowed to bring that in. Um, You're not allowed to have guests over. You're not allowed to act like a human essentially. Like the state giving you a place to sleep at night means that you give up pretty much all of your freedoms, all of your ability to direct your life. And this is exactly what happens when people go to the shelters that exist on Skid Row in Los Angeles right now. You face the exact same kind of requirements, only they're even more draconian. We're talking like a 4.30 a.m. wake-up call, and then you need to be out on the streets by 6. Yeah. And then you end up having to stand there and wait in line. Yeah, if you want to get back into the shelter, yep. you're spending all day exactly. standing there on 7th with Avenue. With no shade, with yep. no protection, with no access to any services, you know, bathroom facilities really, no cold, no nowhere to cool off, no fresh water available to you. And all of your belongings, if you have more than like a small bag of stuff, it has to stay outside. Yep. And you end up, you know, if you have I mean, a pet, there, you there can't are, bring your pet. There are storage areas for people who stay at like the, uh, yeah. the Midnight Mission and stuff. It's, it's not a lot. No, but so, but there is like some storage provided for some people. But it's it's a real pain in the ass. Also, the the storage that they the the storage that they use at the um the city run facility that is on Skid Row, uh, it's I'm trying to remember the name of it. I went and actually toured it. Yeah, it is literally trash cans. Yeah, it is the the black green, the black and the green trash cans that you see outside of people's homes. They just have a big piece of paper that's been laminated that has a a serial number on it. And then they just wheel it from the, you know, the, 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 the checking, uh, the check-in area over to its spot in the columns and stash it there. And you literally are living out of a trash can. It is the most dehumanizing situation. And it's, it's just utterly it's really unacceptable. Dumb. Well, and it's it's the reason we bring this up is so in the state of New York and the city of New York. Yeah, sorry uh, for the yeah no, no, no. <laughs> but when you when you're unhoused, the state and the city have, have an obligation to, yeah. to give you some place to sleep at night. Especially because like there, it snows in the winter. Like you could legitimately freeze to death and die. Fun fact: more people die of hypothermia here in Los Angeles yep. than do in Chicago or New York. Yep. So <laughs> the county board has been trying to brainstorm it's ways. So- yeah. Uh, but the county board has been trying to brainstorm ways to get people off the streets. And yeah. they're not building affordable housing. Oh, so no. Why would they their do that? idea was is now to pass a right to shelter, which may include an obligation to shelter. Whereas, yes. like, if you're at an encampment and Lhasa shows up and is like, hey, we want to get you all into a shelter tonight. And you're like, I don't think I want to do that. They may arrest you. Yeah. They may compel you to go into a jail for shelter rather than like an actual shelter. And what's weird is in New York, and there's been some talk in LA how we would pull this off because Mm -hmm. we're not going to build enough shelter beds for 60,000 people. So a lot of them would have to be hotel rooms and stuff like they do in New York. The city of New York is spending about five times as much as it needs to on hotel rooms as if rather than if they just built everyone their own apartment. Like if they just built affordable housing for people, they could save so much money. But they're spending like a billion dollars a year, like some insane number to put up people in hotels where they're not welcome. The staff doesn't want them. The other guests don't know they're there. And the people who live in these like shelter rooms also don't want to be there. They're just like, well, I've got nowhere else to go. Yeah. Mark Ridley Thomas and the rest of the board is being really coy 
about what the obligation to shelter means here, whether that means more criminalization, whether that means more conservatorships, whether what that's going to mean for people who are actually living on the street and how that's going to be enforced. And when we look at what's happening with Men's Central Jail, where they're shutting it down to turn it into a mental health care facility, well, <laughs> supposedly, what what is it going to mean for people who are out on the street and are no longer allowed to have that freedom and are told, yeah. like, you have to go to a shelter. Oh, you don't want to go to a shelter. Well, I, as a loss of care worker, think that you might have an emotional or mental disturbance and we should get you checked into the mental health care facility yeah. downtown. And then you lose your right to your payments from the VA if you're yep. a vet. You, your social security or disability insurance, those payments suddenly aren't coming to you anymore. They're going to somebody at the state who gets to decide how you spend your money, how you spend your time. The county doesn't want to have this conversation in the open because it is an ugly, terrible conversation. Yeah. And it's a real problem. At the same time, like, we should have a right to shelter. Like, if you want to go into a shelter at night, we should have that available. Yeah, you shouldn't have to stand in line and wait. Well, and the the obligation to shelter is this new, like, draconian twist on this that is really throwing up a lot of red flags for people. So. As this debate moves forward through the election year, you're going to hear a lot about the right to shelter stuff happening at the county. I'm sure it's going to bleed down into the city. But you have to be asking yourself, what does that right to shelter mean? Does that mean an obligation? Does that mean more cops? Does that mean more criminalization? Um, And especially as we move towards this conversation like we're having in San Francisco about whether conservatorships are are good and who gets to determine who's able to care for themselves and be treated as an adult. These are really fundamental questions about how our society is going to be structured. And if you want to see how bad it's going to get for everyone else down the line as like the climate crisis accelerates, just look at how the local authorities treat the unhoused. That's how they will treat you when the shit hits the fan. Yeah, it's absolutely dark and depressing times right now. But This is why it's so important for people to be engaged and being out there and demanding that their elected officials actually treat our unhoused neighbors and everyone else with the dignity that they deserve. Yep. Well, and remember, we've got in in H and uh, Triple H funds, we've got $2 billion over 10 years. In the city of L.A., with a billion dollars, we're supposed to build 10,000 units. We've got 30,000 people living without shelter. Yeah. We're only building 10,000 units at best, and now no, it's, it's going to be like 6,500, maybe. Think I think it's even lower than that at this well, point. Well, you know, I, I was talking with uh, Ducey today, and he's like, hey, well, they're looking into these new public-private partnership oh, things. So, like, shit. they're not going to build new units. They're just going to count, like, already existing units in affordable Hey, building. that's yeah. definitely a way to build more units it, yeah, is not build more units. I know. It's <laughs> – God. But so it, as as this kind of conversation moves forward, just remember the money is there. We have billions of dollars just in the the city and county that we can spend on this. Yeah. We have billions of dollars at the state level that's just not being spent. Like Mark Ridley Thomas, when he's like, oh, well, people have to have a place to go. It's like, wow, if only you had a billion dollars to build some housing. <laughs> well, Man, somebody should get you a special sales tax for that, <laughs> Mr. T. So to be fair, whenever they propose building these shelters – there's always a local pushback. I mean, that is why K-Town for All exists right now is because they organized the counter protest to the protesters who were saying, no, we do not want this shelter to be built here on Vermont. Yep. Like there's a huge amount of public pressure from a very small but very vocal group of folks who come out and say, no, 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 no. We do not want this in our backyards. This is the NIMBYs. This is the why The silent majority that. should fucking stay silent. <laughs> 
These guys, uh, these people also aren't the silent no, majority. No, 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 no. They're, they're they're a vocal minority. A very vocal, very and, small minority. And like that was, you know, we're going to be seeing a lot more of that. People get really upset, you know, up in CD12. One of the big differences between Lorraine and John Lee is Lorraine's like, let's build some permanent supportive housing, and John Lee's like, we're not building a single single unit of affordable housing up here. That will destroy the quality of life for all of these people living where, in their ridiculously gigantic where houses. Where are they going to live? Where are you going to park your SUV? <laughs> next to a next to a, a building full of formerly unhoused people? That is that is violating the Geneva Conventions, Chris. Bushido, was, is it, it's almost like you were up there walking around and seeing a whole bunch of SUVs parked in front of people's houses. I saw a house that had three <laughs> garage doors. And in front of each door was its own SUV. And I was just sort of like, why do you need three SUVs? Why do you need a SUV? Why can't you just- You live in Los uh. Angeles. <laughs> you don't need those. But uh, one of the things that I wanted to point out here is that the basic structure of people living in shelters is so fundamentally at, at odds with people being able to recover from uh, or get themselves out of the situation that they're in and actually become housed. Yeah. Shelters do not work for getting people off the streets. They get people off the streets temporarily overnight for a place that's supposed to be safe for them to sleep. But they're often not. But they're often not. There's often a lot of violence that can happen. There's a lot of... Uh, well, and, and one thing we haven't talked about in a little while is the number of police and, and private oh security that are hired for, like, the new bridge shelter. Oh, like yeah. that, that uh, the, the well, it's it was called... El the, the you were, You're thinking of El Puente, yeah. It, well, but it was called the Pueblo first one. Pueblo and then first. they were like, we don't want unhoused <laughs> people associated with the founding of Los Angeles. Which Let's is like, the, the El Pueblo is literally across the street from it. Yeah, but they but they have, you know, two private security guards yeah. on duty all the time. They have two LAPD guys who yep. are on duty all the time yep. there, paid for out of a different account. And then they have four LAPD guys who just patrol around there all yeah. the time. Like, LAPD is spending twice as much money policing that shelter as we're oh. spending running it. And they're all overtime. Yeah. Because, that, they, yeah. They, because they say that this is something that is a... Um, not a predictable expense. They can't justify expanding the staffing, so then they have to pay overtime because they're like, well, we can't guarantee that this is just something. It's like, yes, you can. Yes, you can. You can staff for this appropriately. A, it shouldn't be police, but B, you absolutely can staff for this appropriately and not have to pay overtime for all of the cops working every single hour that they are at that's at in patrol around that area. It's like, it's just patently absurd. But yeah. what I was going to get at was that there is a podcast out there that I'm highly going to recommend to everybody. It's from uh, Adam Conover from who is, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Adam Internet. ruins everything. Adam ruins everything. He did an amazing interview with Mark Horvath from, uh, Horvath rather, from Invisible People. Mm -hmm. It is one of the most uh, incredibly useful and eye-opening interviews that I have ever heard where people are talking about what it actually means to be homeless. Mm. And Mark tells his story, you know, he was addicted to, I believe it was heroin, and was the he was the snake guy or the iguana guy on Hollywood Boulevard. And that's what everybody knew him oh. as. Yeah, yeah. That was Mark. Oh, I didn't realize. Okay. So yeah, okay. you need to listen to this yeah. interview too. It's great. So Mark tells you his whole story of like what it was like when he was homeless and how he, you know, how he ended up becoming sober and, you know, getting out there and doing these interviews yep. and, and doing this publication of you know, really putting people's stories out on the front line of like, look, they are human beings. Yeah. They need to, they deserve to be treated with dignity and you should listen to what they have to say. So Invisible People is great. You should absolutely check them out. Uh, Mark, I know, just had a, uh, a Patreon 
uh, thing go up on his uh, on his Twitter. Yeah, highly recommend everyone check out check that out if you can. Uh, give some money to him. He's doing amazing work. He should definitely be allowed to keep doing it. Yep. Um, but on top of all that, listen to that interview that he did with Adam because it's incredibly eye opening. The two of them are both very good storytellers in yeah. their own ways, and they work so well together. No, and it's it's cool to see Adam Conover who's got like he's not like the biggest celebrity on the planet, no, but, but he's, he's showing up at CELA events. Yeah. Like I think him he's and Hayes know each other like Hayes from uh, LA podcast like getting folks with some sort of a platform to talk about this stuff and to humanize it really effing matters yes it does and you know as as much as we try here at Ground Game and try not to get starstruck, it's really nice when somebody who can immediately reach 100,000 people with yeah. a tweet is like, hey, this thing is broken and fucked up and we need to pay attention to it's that. It's so good. <laughs> that, in this case, is more than a local conversation. It's a national conversation. Yes, it is. And things are going to expand. Like the, the housing crisis, is beco- it, it is a global crisis. It is a national crisis. Yeah. And it's one that no one has been addressing Bernie is finally trying to do it. Elizabeth Warren has talked about it. Um, there aren't really too many other candidates who have good, firm plans, but we're beginning to understand that, like, L.A. and New York seen as, like, hotbeds of, like, homelessness and dirty, like, broken cities. That's becoming more true of, like, cities across the country. My yeah. friends in, in, in you know, Columbus, Ohio are like, wow, there's a lot more people living on the street than I yeah. remember a year or two ago. And what just, the hell happened? And, and it's like, just hmm. wait until the climate crisis hits even bigger yep. deg- degrees. And, you know, that not intending to make a pun there. But no, no, no. As it warms up, people are going to have to be leaving the, you know, regions of the planet that are becoming uninhabitable. Well, even beyond that, you know, just the number of crops that get destroyed oh, in a high yeah. storm year. Oh, like, it's Jesus. going to cause more, more unemployment, more uh, pain on an economic level. And I'm glad you brought that up. Because now we're going to pivot to the reading oh, series. Hey, that actually was totally unintentional yeah. and worked but really so, well. Yeah, so let's go ahead and talk oh, about this piece God. by Christopher Caldwell about Greta Thunberg. Me fail English? That's impossible. What we're going to be talking about today are what I'm doing for the, the reading series. And this one is, it's painful. Uh, but so this is by Christopher Caldwell. And the New York Times does like this interesting thing where when they list his bio, they say he's the author of Reflections on the Revolution in Europe Immigration, Islam, and the West. Oh. Which is charitable because he has, like, some (laughs) other bona fides that might change your opinion of him, including being the senior editor of the Weekly Standard. He's also a contributor (laughs) to the Financial Times, which we all know are just, like, you know, communist red lefty (laughs) rags. But so Christopher Caldwell uh, has written an op-ed, and this came out about a week ago. I'm a little late on this one, but I I was kind of saving it. Uh, the the title is The Problem with Greta Thunberg's Climate Activism. Uh-oh. Her radical approach is at odds with democracy. Wait. Yeah, so it, you already you kind of like get to this like weird point where you're like, I don't remember voting for the oil companies to have the right to kill us all. Uh, but apparently destroying the climate with CO2 and fossil fuels like that, that's in line with democracy. Yeah, no, very. it's a very democratic process choosing. We, we definitely had a majority rule decision that we wanted to all die in a hellscape that is what we are beginning to create around us as we continue to dump carbon into the atmosphere. And it's not like Exxon or the rest of them no. like sat on research for literally oh, decades yeah. that told us what they're... It's not like these same companies <laughs> fought against lead rules because like lead oh, was literally Jesus, poisoning almost everyone about that in one. America. Yeah. But yeah. it made the engines run so good. Well, and that's the thing is like if you go back into the records, like Standard Oil knew that leaded gasoline was dangerous because they literally had an entire plant where like 60% of their workers yeah. like went fucking 
insane. Yeah, they were like committing suicide and running oh, and around. Even worse, like it was bad. Like yeah. if you've seen the terror, like it's that level of lead poisoning. Jeez. If you haven't seen the terror, go watch the terror. It's really good. <laughs> uh, I hear the second season is going to be like really interesting. It's going to huh. focus on uh, internment camps. But I'm getting distracted. Let's get back to the the horror story at hand, which is our climate apocalypse. So Christopher starts off uh, <laughs> oh, no. pretty strong. Quote, climate activists in Western Europe had already been radicalizing for some time when the record heat engulfed the continent last month. Which, by the way, he uh, he capitalizes the continent, uh, which I think is interesting <laughs> because that's – I haven't seen that one before, at least not in like the continental versus analytic divide in philosophy school. Uh, that aside – uh, quote, the high reached 109 degrees in Paris two Thursdays ago, yet many environmentalists have come to believe that extreme weather alone will never spur Europeans to give up fossil fuels, nor will talking about it. Provocations and disruption are needed. So Caldwell's already starting off with kind of this weird framing because people have been fighting climate change for a very long, oh, yeah. long while. And European groups have been pretty radical about this. But this yes. idea that like Europe is just now radicalizing versus like <laughs> – their last heat wave, I want to say in 2003, like 15,000 people in Europe died in 2003 from that heat wave. This is just a taste of things to come. So he continues on the next paragraph, quote, the problem is not that Europeans think like Americans, 13, uh, 13% of whom say human activity is not responsible at all for global warming. Europeans are less cynical about official accounts of climate change that come from the United Nations of various universities. The problem, rather, is that Europeans act like Americans, holding tight to their driving and consuming habits. It's almost like there's this whole system in place of, like, economics that, like, leads ones to make these, like, choices or, like, they're... Capitalism. Yeah. So it's weird because, like, <laughs> a lot of the changes that, like, we're asking for as a climate yeah. movement aren't just personal changes. No. Like, yeah, going vegan, great. Giving up your car, Great. Um, but, but that it, does nothing when you literally have super tankers yeah. that are putting out more emissions yeah. than every car on the Quit road. burning bunker fuel, folks. Yeah, or private jets flying <laughs> across the, the, the globe. The, the celebrities taking private jets to, like, environmental retreats is still one of my biggest, like, facepalm events that you can see when it comes to people talking about, you know, environmentalism. It's just like, what the hell are you doing? And so he, he continues in the next paragraph, quote, climate activists have therefore changed their emphasis. No more eliciting pieties by explaining what happens when carbon dioxide rises past 400 uh, parts per million. Better to use the specter of imminent self-destruction to rally the public behind actions like banning cars from city centers and halting new oil exploration. So there's a couple uh. of things to unpack here. <laughs> you know, one is like we did pass 400 yes. parts per million, 415. Yeah. We ha literally have not seen that on the planet Earth for three and a half million years. Yep. So uh, that's a little bit alarming, and people are continuing to talk about that. Oh, yeah. Nobody's moved away from that. No. More to the point, the calls for banning cars from city centers aren't for stopping global warming. It's no. for raising the quality of life in the city center. Yeah. Having cars driving around cities, really dangerous, really dirty. Like 40% of the emissions put out by your car are non-tailpipe emissions. It's the rubber coming off of the tires. It's the oil dripping onto the ground. It's the plastic in the frame slowly disintegrating. All of that stuff becomes pollution that's yeah. not necessarily feeding global warming as much as it's ending up in your lungs and killing you. Yeah, the particulate emissions that come from just from like – the brakes 
and from the tire friction with the ground and the stuff that gets picked up from the ground and then thrown up into the air as the cars drive by yep. is a huge amount of the pollution that is in there. And you see these, especially in European cities, because they've basically, uh, you know, you had your choice between either creating uh, cleaner gas cleaner gas-powered cars uh, and working on the emissions that way or uh, going with more fuel-efficient diesel-powered cars and then taking the hit uh, so like you 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 either uh, try to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions by increasing your particulate emissions which is what you get with the with the diesel cars yep. or you go the other direction so uh, Europe took the direction of going more with the diesel but then because of that in the city centers you just have these massive concentrations of particulate emissions, which then when you see cities banning it, the banning vehicular traffic in the city core, like in Madrid, yeah. it's so good. It's like an incredible boon for the local economy because now everybody can walk around. It increases the business in the shops. More pleasant for everybody. In Madrid, like they elected a new conservative mayor who tried to undo the policy and there were such massive protests. He yeah. backed off. And it yep. wasn't protests just from the left. It was protests no. from people who just live in Madrid and were like, I would like to be able to live in my house yeah. and not die from asthma. Yeah. And it's it, part of what Caldwell is doing here is this like cynical ploy that a lot of people who want to fight against any sort of like climate action or environmental action where they attempt to like frame every single good environmental thing as only being related to climate change on a macro scale when it's not. There's a lot of changes we can make yeah. that aren't necessarily going to halt global warming but would be good for us in other ways and would have a <laughs> knock-on effect for global warming. It's like these things are intersecting in yeah. ways that are complicated and ubiquitous. So he continues, uh, <laughs> quote, the new focus may have the virtue of conveying urgency, but it is going to bring the climate protesters into conflict with democracy, whether they realize it or not. Hold on, I want to reframe this. The new focus on the urgency of ending slavery may seem good to a lot of people, but it's going to bring these abolitionists into conflict uh, with democracy. Like, this is a terrible uh, argument, especially when you look at the fact that, like, extractive capitalism is oppressive and hurts people, and you can't just vote that away. Like, oh you can't God. just vote that sort of stuff away. That's why, you know, getting rid of slavery wasn't just everyone getting together and voting. There was an entire fucking war over it. Yeah. Like, there are political decisions that are made outside of the ballot box all the time. And like we said at the top, remember, handing the world over to the fossil fuel companies wasn't a democratic decision. No, We didn't get not. to vote on that, but that decision got made anyways. <sighs> so... <laughs> He keeps going down. Quote, the symbol of this transformation is Swedish high school student Greta Thunberg, who describes herself to her 800,000 plus Twitter followers as a 16-year-old climate activist with Asperger. Late last summer, she began skipping school on Fridays and traveling to Sweden's parliament. The Riks... The Rick's dog. Sorry, I. Even though I come from like Scandinavian stock, I can't pronounce any of their words. It's all good. Same for me. Uh, yeah, like my my. You know, maternal family name is like Peterson, and it's spelled in a real weird Does way it have with two a D. S's? No, it's got a D oh. and it's got no O's. You know, Ooh. it's all E's. Yeah, that's uh, but definitely anyways. some that's some Scandinavian stuff right there. Uh, quote: Where she handed out flyers inform informing adults in crude language that she was doing this because they were ruining her future. Which I, I like that he's shaming a sixteen-year-old <laughs> for being like, "Fuck you, you're killing us," and being like, "This young lady dropping the f bombs to stop extinction." <laughs> Shame on you for being upset that we're destroying the planet for you and making it so you won't be able to grow up and have a family of your own. If you wanted us to take you seriously and not make you go extinct, you wouldn't drop F-bombs, Greta. Fuck him. Yeah. 
continuing on, quote, classmates joined her. Students in other U European capitals imitated her. Fridays for the future, as the protesters came to be called, Hell turned yeah. Miss Thun Turnberg into a world political leader born this century. Yeah. They have been hailed by green parties across the continent, many of which won impressive victories in May's European elections. So, again, like... <laughs> wait, 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 hold on. So this is incompatible with democracy, except that, like... <laughs> except that they're winning. <laughs> yeah, except these are winning policies, but incompatible with democracy. Let's remember the thesis. Oh, uh, no. Quote, Miss Turnberg believes people should act, not argue. That, perha that perhaps is why she is planning to travel to next month's United Nations Global Warming Summit in New York by sailboat, not airplane. I mean... It is not that Miss Turnberg does not care about climate data. Indeed, she cites the annual reports of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, as they were gospel. It's just that she is done debating. Yeah, no shit, the science is done, dude. Yeah. Like, Caldwell is doing this weird, like, anti-popper, where, like, uh. Karl Popper was like, hey, you don't allow every bad argument to sit at the table and talk because, like, some of those arguments are put forward by fascists who want to slit your throat. His is the opposite, where it's like, oh, you have all this data that proves that you're right? Well, you just can't shut down debate. You just can't tell people who disagree with the science to not have a place at the table. Yes. That's insanity. It's yes, like, we no, can. we can. We absolutely can and we must because they have had too much of a share of the debate table for way too fucking long. Well, and they also had the data. Like, again, Exxon yeah. in 1968. They knew, knew what was going on. Yeah. They had their scientists model it out, and their scientists' like predictions from the 60s and early 70s are so spot on. It's scary. Like they predicted this shit and then didn't tell anyone because it would have cost them money. It's almost like corporations have a self-interest motivation that keeps them from disclosing things to the public that could damage their profitability. Yep. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. Cigarettes. Yeah. So he continues We've on. seen this before, yeah. folks. It's not surprising. God damn it. So he continues on. Her politics rests on two things. First is simplification. Quote, the climate crisis already has been solved. Unquote. She said at a TED Talk in Stockholm this year. Quote, we already have all the facts and solutions. All we have to do is wake up and change. Unquote. Second is sowing panic, as she explained from the World Economic Forum in Davos last winter. So, I'm so glad okay. she went to that, by the way. Yeah, no, but here's the thing. Is like... His argument here is, like, one, saying it's simplification, which it's not. Like, this no. is complicated science, yeah. and it's fucking settled. And the other is sowing panic, which, like, you started this article off by talking about how it was 109 degrees in Paris. I live in Phoenix, Arizona. 109 degrees, like, we just call that a day that ends in Y between May and October. Yeah, well. 109 degrees in Paris? That's a big fucking That deal. is not supposed to happen. No. There's a reason why, like, the historical record doesn't show that happening all the time. And that's not sowing panic. That's being like, yo, the house is on fire. <laughs> oh, you're just trying to sow panic. No, you need to get out. The house is on fire. Well, I'm not giving in to your panic. I'm going to stay here in my Barker lounger. He's like, why the, am I melting into my Barker lounger? He's the, he's the meme dog of everything's on fire. And he says yes. to himself that everything is fine. Everything is fine. And I would like a warmer coffee. Thank you. Uh, anyways, he continues on, quote, Normally, Ms. Thunberg would be unqualified to debate in a democratic forum since a 16-year-old is not a legally responsible adult. Full stop here in the middle of his sentence. Because <laughs> the idea that a 16-year-old is not allowed to participate in a debate, like, he's not, like, she's not saying, let me vote. She's saying, let me speak and listen to me. Yeah. And he's saying, no, we don't have to listen to anyone under the age of 18, which, again, like, there's... 
no good argument here that like the only people who are allowed to talk politics are those who are allowed to vote. Like that's just not. Women shouldn't have been talking about politics because they weren't allowed to vote before the suffragettes did. Oh, right. Because you should listen to the people that are not being allowed to have a vote. Somebody go back and let the founders know they never should have listened to Mary Adams since she was not like a white land-owning uh, male. She did not get the right to vote, <laughs> so she should not be listened to. It's, anyway, so continuing on in the same paragraph. Uh, quote, she cannot be robustly criticized. What do you mean she can't be robustly criticized? You're oh, robustly criticized. You. You're, 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 well, not robustly, but you it's, are definitely criticizing No, it's her. just the dumbest shit. Uh, sorry, I... It's like I'm going to read a line and then yell at it. But uh, try, getting back on track, quote, even leaving aside her self-description as autistic, Miss Miss Turnberg is a complicated adolescent, which they all are. We all contain multitudes. Yeah, I was going to say, like, quote, <laughs> find me a 16-year-old that's not complicated. Yeah. Quote, intellectually, she is uh, precocious and subtle. She reasons like a well-read but dogmatic student radical in her 20s. Uh, What's but what's wrong with uh, what's wrong with that? Physically, she is diminutive and fresh-faced. Comes off as younger than her years, and frequently refers to herself as a child. About the last thing the average sixteen-year-old would ever do. Not actually. You haven't met many sixteen-year-olds. Yeah. Um, and, also, and also, like, what's the obsession with her appearance? Because, Why? Why? Because he's a weird, creepy old white dude. And she's she's a young woman. Uh, continuing on, quote, kids her age have not seen much of life. Her worldview might be unre- unrealistic. Her priorities out of balance. But in our time and in her cause, that seems to be a plus. People have had enough of balance and perspective. They want single-minded devotion to the task at hand. Maybe like single-minded devotion to creating profit for billionaires who are destroying our fucking planet. Maybe <sighs> maybe like that, Christopher. But also this idea that like she's somehow out of line with what most people are talking about. Like, I don't know anyone in real life who doesn't accept that the climate crisis is a reality. Yeah. Like, I don't talk to anyone, no matter where they sit on the political spectrum, who doesn't acknowledge that we're in a crisis. It's just their solutions are different. Yeah. And this weird kind of thing where he's like, oh, kids her age haven't seen a lot of life. It's like, you know... With the way they're the way that we're going, they're not going to get to see that much of their lives because you're fucking killing the planet. Well, and also beyond that, like assuming that because somebody is young, they haven't like created or generated knowledge in their life or don't is, have an understanding of the world is like a really boomer fucking view. Like yeah, you must be this many years old to talk about stuff. And it's like, you know, there are children in this world who live in Palestine who have seen more than an American like Christopher Caldwell. There are people who know more fundamental truths about life at a younger age because of, like, where they've been and what they've experienced. Greta Thunberg has obviously hit a nerve, struck a nerve with a lot of people. Like, she wouldn't have a million Twitter followers. She wouldn't have millions of people turning up across the globe every fucking Friday to protest this stuff if she didn't have some connection with their lives. So he's trying to say, oh, well, she doesn't have this thing that she clearly already has. Anyway, so uh, continuing on, this uh, quote, this Miss Miss Turnberg provides that uh, that climate change be understood as an emergency is her first objective. Increasingly, authorities share it. The week of the heat wave, according to The Economist, the Met Office, the British Meteorological Agency, was trying to speed up its attribution studies so it can link incidents of extreme weather to global warming before the public's attention drifts. This is a political, not meteorological goal. Okay. So it's a meteorological goal explaining, like, 
why that weather is happening. Yeah. But also it is political too because the struggle to survive climate change is political. We yeah. have to make political decisions. It's, you can't separate the two of them. This is you know, how saying, society works. You know, saying it's raining versus saying it's raining harder than it has rained in an entire century and, and flooding the rain a river. Is full which of acid. Is, well, which has destroyed a city and is now flooding out farmland and destroying our food supply. There's a lot of politics going on in there, and you can't really separate the two. Uh, but he continues in the same paragraph, quote, there are also calls to politicize language. Language is already political. That's what language is, but uh, to put a pin in that one. In May, The Guardian announced it would use the term climate crisis rather than climate change in its articles and global heating rather than global warming. For, fun fact, global warming comes from the George W. Bush Foundation, not foundation, George W. Bush administration, when Frank fucking Luntz, uh, he suggested climate change instead of global warming because it was more neutral and more acceptable. Yeah. He did this in an era where they were trying to tamp down the, the political uh, options for what we could do to stop climate change, to cut down on fossil fuel use, to basically fight against all of the good things that we were trying to do. Frank Luntz, by the way, his house almost burned down in the Wolsey fire. He now is fully on board with fixing the climate crisis. So if you want a rich white guy with political power to come to our side, apparently you have to burn down their house. His house didn't burn down, just to be clear. It just almost burned down. And him almost losing a massive house, which I'm sure is fully insured. Like, he would have lost some stuff, but he would have been fully insured and saved his life. That caused him to be like, oh, my God, my life might change. (laughs) Like, I was okay with it when the Global South was the ones getting Uh. fucked. But, like, when my life and my house in in the valley in Los Angeles is threatened by a climate-driven wildfire, I can't. I can't. We have to change the messaging on this. But yeah, so he's basically saying like political terms that were developed by political operatives were not political. This wasn't politicized language. And that and Greta Thunberg is the one politicizing the language by moving us into a different phraseology from the one created by political operatives. So whenever somebody tells you like language isn't political or don't politicize this, just point at them and say bullshit because everything is political. Looking at you, every Republican, when talking about mass shootings. Don't politicize Epstein's death. How dare you? <laughs> God damn it. That was a very inappropriate joke. Oh, God, I click. Oh, God, no, I didn't mean to do that. I'm sorry, folks. I've fallen into crisis where I accidentally clicked the ad for Aussie Fest. Oh, no. Yeah, and I've I've navigated back from it. We're safe, but that was a scary couple of seconds. Anyways, though, uh, Caldwell continues on, quote, alliances between institutional authorities and activists like Mr. Turnberg often backfire with questions of global warming. The problems of credibility are already large, even without fresh incitements to politicization. What the fuck is Sometime after the age of 16, most people learn that not even members of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change are above of self-interest in human error. So apparently you get old enough to think that scientists are lying to you is his point there. Um, and also that you shouldn't politicize things. You know, if you're right about stuff, you never have to do politics because that's how the world works in Christopher Caldwell's I do, mind. I genuinely do not understand what his basis of like any of this logic is. It's He's insane. a rich white guy who edits the Weekly Standard and he oh, would very sure. much like to keep his job and his head attached to his shoulders. <laughs> Continuing on, quote, it is also hard to say what a real non-utopian low-carbon politics would look like. It's actually fucking not. We keep telling you, asshole. It's really not. We literally keep telling you. Uh, quote, it's once, not hard. Quote, once the public got involved in legislating and regulating, uh, sorry, uh, so he continues on that same sentence. It's not hard to, uh, 
It is also hard to say what a real non-utopian low-carbon politics would look like once the public got involved in legislating and regulating. Contrary to the assumptions of many... Uh, or, Contrary to the assumptions of many of Ms. Turnberg's admirers, it might resemble contemporary populist agendas more than the world imagined by the United Nations modelers and the governance experts of Davos. Protectionism could be in. If you establish a system of carbon pricing, countries that don't practice it are dumping, and their imports must be excluded. Immigration could be out. It is difficult to see how any kind of long-term mass immigration is consistent with a desire to lower Europe's carbon output. Okay, so here's the thing is Wait. even in developed nations, Wait. it's not the poor people who are generating no. most of the carbon. It's the rich people. Yeah. There's also this weird idea that like, you know, it, this kind of ties into the yellow vest thing where people are like, oh, they're rebelling against like carbon pricing. And they're rebelling against like gasoline pricing. It's like, no, no, no. They were rebelling against the way that that particular tax was rolled out because it was specifically aimed at working people. It yeah. wasn't aimed at the corporations. Like no. we could tax the shit out of the, the shipping companies. We don't. We could tax the shit out of industrial uh, uh, uh creators of CO of carbon emissions hell like the largest emitter of carbon emissions on the planet is the US military yeah we don't have to regulate shit to we bring can, that to an end we just tell them we can not just to make them it. not do it yeah, yeah we just it's, close those military bases stop amazing. those flights like yeah. bam done um it's also weird that he brings <laughs> immigration into this one because immigration he's obviously skeptical of immigration that's why he's told like islam in the west and islam in the west are two different things that have never met and it's like you sir have probably used algebra and you probably use what arabic numerals what in those equations i know it's crazy but this he's this sort of what like a- western chauvinist who's like oh the west is always separate from islam even though they've never been separate it's yeah. all the same like big human economy but his weird oh, fear here boy. is like hey guys if you're not careful even crazier anti-immigration people than me are going to uh, control the debate that suddenly we're going to see a lot more racism and xenophobia and it's like you can just look at the southern border and see what the climate crisis is bringing us in terms of immigration yeah. and it's really fucking dark like it this is. stuff is happening now these aren't like oh in the future we might face these we're facing actual harm Christopher Caldwell just isn't bringing any of that into his but calculus these people do not drive carbon emissions these no. people are not the problem these people are the victims like it is I, I just this logic that he's applying just blows my mind. I do not understand oh, it, where he's it gets going. better. Oh, no. So in the next paragraph, quote, and that is before we even broach the question of what kind of civilization we want and at what level of technological complexity. On a planet of 8 billion people, it is not just destination weddings that require considerable expenditure of energy. So does food. So does clean drinking water. So does communication. And look, the first two actually don't. Getting clean water can literally be one of the most energy efficient things ever. It's just if you're polluting the fuck out of the water or having to transport it millions of miles, not millions of miles, but like (laughs) hundreds of miles. You know, if you're in a state like California that doesn't have a whole lot of fresh water and you're like siphoning off the Colorado, yeah, yeah, that's really hard, especially when you're like selling that water for cheap to agricultural Or you're just letting Nestle pump a ton of it out of the ground and bottle it and sell it illegally. Oh, but that's out of aquifers. They're not even sucking out the Colorado. They're sucking our natural aquifers that we could be using. Yeah, and I I correct myself quickly. Quickly there. Nestle is not selling the water illegally. They're just yeah. pulling it out of the ground. Well, illegally. and also the other thing with food is like, yeah, if you're going to be, if your food system is going to be based on this like corporate agricultural, like massive, Industrial yeah, yeah. It, that sort of like rubric or that sort of like 
um, uh, basis for like food production, then yeah, it's going to be real energy intensive. Really if you is. move to a smaller, more locally based, more locally sourced, like, hey, we grow stuff here that we can yeah. grow within season. We yeah. transport it less than 100 miles. We don't burn that much gas to get it around. Yeah. Boom. But when you live in an economy like we do here in the U.S., where literally we raise chickens in Tennessee, slaughter them, freeze them, send them to China to be processed, and then send them back. Yeah, that's really energy intensive, and it's also really stupidly inefficient unless you're a shareholder for Tyson Foods. Who does that? And here's a real <sighs> quick idea. No. Don't let Tyson Foods do that. We can <laughs> we can cut down that energy usage real quick, and it's not going to fundamentally impact the food supply. What is going to fundamentally impact the food supply is when we have massive storms in the Midwest that literally destroy enough farmland and like ranch land that we're only planting 60% of the crops in the U.S. we were supposed to plant this year. Yeah, so like, That is a massive is, effing problem. It's almost like that's exactly what happened this year when all of these floods that were happening at, in the late spring were keeping the ground so saturated that you couldn't plant anything. Yep. We couldn't grow the crops because the land had been flooded so much well, it, it even gets better from uh, there no, because, like, all no. the cattle that drown and end oh, up in the yeah. Mississippi and then flow down with that flood water, they end up somewhere decaying in a field and fallowing that ground, yeah. like, or fouling that fouling, ground, rather, yeah. and basically making it impossible. Plus, all of the uh, uh, industrial pesticides yep. and uh, uh, everything else that gets picked up whenever there's a flood. Fertilizer. Just like, that was yeah, the word yeah. I was looking and, for. And yep. just, just like where in California, when everything burns, you get incredible amounts of like just random shit kicked up into the air that wasn't supposed to be there. The same thing happens when you get flooding, yep. especially when you have like the dumping grounds for industrial pollution and industrial farming pollution, like the uh, the what is it? The, like the poop yeah. containers, like the yep. big vats of oh, the like shit. the hog farm. Yeah, yeah no, like when yeah, that those stuff's things, all got to go somewhere. It, when those, so when you have flooding in like in the rivers near these farms, they don't build levees around pools of shit. Nope. The, f the the flooding happens. It gets to the pool of shit, and then suddenly that shit is now everywhere. So you have an ecological disaster because now all of that the flood water, like when there's a flood, you do not want to be touching that water. That no. water is full of all kinds of stuff. And like there are Superfund sites that are also being flooded yep. and then they're contaminating these water supplies when it's just... Yeah, let's not forget Santa Susana, it's a Superfund site. Yeah. That's where the Woolsey fire that yeah. almost burnt down uh, Frank Luntz's house started. Oh, um, but yeah, this Damn is... It. You know, the, the ultimate point here is that Caldwell yeah, gonna, is... I'm going to be slamming my head into the desk in a minute here. Oh, it, well, we're almost done. It's, okay. We only got three more paragraphs to go. But the, the Caldwell's <laughs> like ultimate... minutes. <laughs> well, Caldwell's ultimate thing here is that he's like, we have to be wary of these impacts in the future while not talking about the impacts They're we're living happening. now. Come on. So he continues on, quote, increasingly climate agitators want action, not distraction. That requires demonizing anyone who stands in the way. In July, the climate editor of Dutch paper NRC uh, Handelsblad complained that Paris's declaration of a climate state of emergency on July 9th had not been accompanied by a ban on automobile traffic in Paris or by a dimming of the lights on the Eiffel Tower. In Germany, the word... <laughs> Flugscham is one of the years uh, is one of last year's more interesting quinages. It means not fear of flying, but shame of flying and of the pollution it brings about. Yeah. The German economist Nico Page urges shaming people for booking cruises and driving SUVs too. Yes, you should. Yeah. Like fuck your SUV, fuck you for taking a cruise. Like Carnival Cruise Lines is responsible for a non-trivial number or a non-trivial amount of carbon emissions across the globe. Like we know that. Those yeah. cruise ships 
are just toxic colonizing bullshit. Don't go on them. If you're thinking about buying that H3, walk into a door frame instead. <laughs> like, there are easy ways to fix that, and you shouldn't feel bad about it. Like, you should feel bad about buying an SUV that you don't need. Like, if you're driving around L.A. in, like, a Suburban with four-wheel drive, uh, you don't need to be doing that. Like, there are places in this world where, like, those cars are necessary for stuff. It, it's not in most urban centers where you see them. Get yourself a minivan and be super cool, folks. Yeah, I, or, you know, just uh, maybe not even own a car. Maybe, you know, go for one of them car Public sharing programs. Transit, like, what? Or, or, like, the blue car. Like, oh, honestly, yeah. like, you can ride a bike to most of your destinations in your life. It's fine. You can walk if you want. Like, yeah. you can go a little bit slower. Get yourself a lime. I mean, this is the only time I'll, like, even <laughs> suggest that, but like you can survive without a car, but not in Christopher Caldwell's um, world. Uh, so anyways, he continues, quote, behind the new boldness of climate activists is the assumption that ordinary Europeans, good intentions are sincere and their inaction is hypocritical. It could be the other way around. Whatever the case, European slowness to act on climate cannot be dismissed as denial. Those who read the United Nations reports and tut tut but failed to take to the streets might be resolute, but they might simply agree. Or they might simply disagree or have other priorities. So a lot of this problem, and this is kind of what we're trying to point out with like Sunrise and Extinction Rebellion and Youth Climate Strike, is the problems aren't individual choice. The problem is the systems that we have. Like, again, there are three massive super tankers that put out more carbon emissions and more sulfur dioxide emissions than every single car yeah. on the road in the world. Yeah, not more carbon, but definitely more sulfur. No, no, but they put out— um, It's the sulfur dioxide from the bunker fuel. Yeah, but they also put out a lot of they do put uh, out a lot CO2 of, yeah, emissions. They, I think, it I doesn't, think it which, doesn't outdo the cars, but yes. But the, I think the, the global flip, uh, shipping fleet does outpace cars uh, for carbon emissions. I'd have to double check on that one, but— yeah. The, 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 the big but the, it's sulfur dioxide is yeah. a global is a, a greenhouse it's gas and bad. is super toxic for you. But the problem here again is like we need to fix the system. It's not about shaming people into making different yeah. individual choices. Your individual like, choices matter, yes, but they're not how we fix this. Exactly. And so Caldwell's doing this thing where he's like, oh, Turnberg is just trying to shame people into making different choices, and that's not going to ever work because they would have already been doing that because they have the data, and it's like, well, clearly they don't. Like, in A, they didn't have the yeah. data until recently. And like, also Exxon the, was hiding it. And the news media does everything in their power to, like, not actually talk about this stuff in the real perspective that is necessary. But when it, when it comes to making individual choices, this is like— I, I kind of want to trigger you by talking about plastic straw bans. Oh, yeah. No, that one's, oh, God, Mitch's, like, only thing he's ever done in city council. Like, the only initiative that he actually, like, shepherded through that whole process was yep. banning straws because he fucking hates disabled people. Yep. So, yeah. <laughs> so let's move on to the concluding paragraph. And this one's a, this one's a doozy. Um, it, it's, this one's going to make your hair hurt. Quote. <laughs> What? Democracy often calls for waiting and seeing. Patience may be democracy's cardinal virtue. Climate change is a serious issue. But to say, we can't wait, is to invite a problem just as grave. No, it's fucking not! We literally... There's literally people dying from climate change now. We can't We have wait. to do something about it. We, we have we, 10 years. Well, no, we can't wait. We're all just going to fucking die. Yeah, yeah, like, waiting happens. is death. And it's also one of these where, like... You Jesus. see these same arguments, like, pop up throughout history whenever people are like, hey, there's this thing that's really fucked up that we should fix, like slavery, and people are like, whoa. 
We can't just go changing whoa, whoa, whoa. society for let's, the better. Let's be patient and wait. We don't know what's going to happen in terms of the economic impact if we uh, take this thing away. What are you going to do? Are you going to are you going to put our our amazing economy at risk? Is it really worth the cost of the profit for these massive corporations and these wealthy landowners? Is it really worth upsetting that apple cart just to try to make things be changed for the better? I mean, this is pretty much exactly what, like, uh, what's her name, the uh, the chief executive in Hong Kong is saying right now when they're about I mean, to look, bring the, the Oh, yeah, Carrie Lam, when yeah. she's like, these protesters like, could, haven't thought about destroying our economy. No, and it's like, you know. They're talking they, about being in the People's but, Liberation Army and just oh, no, fucking they, quelling the, uh, the uplifting. The, the, the uh, PLC, or the PLA, rather, is already on the ground. Like, they've, uh, they've moved into Hong Kong. They just haven't been super active. But, you know, I think, I think the, the, Title of Chris's next book, uh, Caldwell's book, not yours. Uh, <laughs> yeah, will you. will give us some like insight into his mindset and what to wait, think of other wait, things he says. What? So his forthcoming book is Uh-oh. is titled "The Age of Entitlement: America Since the '60s." Because remember, kids, being able to own other human beings wasn't an entitlement. Not being able to vote because you're black wasn't somebody else's entitlement. Um, being a guy who could vote just by virtue of like having a penis, that's not an entitlement. But no, 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 no. Like wanting college paid for, uh, wanting a society that has some sort of a safety net, uh, wanting elderly people not to die in poverty because they can't work anymore or people shouldn't have to work until they drop dead. Those are all unjust entitlements that wealthy man Christopher Caldwell wants you to know that you're very ungrateful for wanting. So this guy's a piece of shit. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, we knew that on. we knew that when we saw that he worked for the Weekly Standard. <laughs> but ultimately like we we're going to keep seeing this kind of bullshit where we see like old boomer people coming in to be like, "No, you can't change things too quickly. That'll be bad for society." Stop, don't Think about all them. of the pain that you'll make and it's like uh, We're going to experience that pain. It's just that the writers of these kinds of articles exist and live in a class that's not directly affected by that. Yeah. You know, people that you know, people that I know have been directly affected by climate change. The town of Paradise burned the fuck down because of a climate change driven wildfire. Yeah, it's gone. People are still homeless. Tens of thousands of people do not have a place to live in Northern California. We are the wealthiest state in the nation, and we have climate refugees, and no one talks about that. This kind of stuff is going to keep happening, and people like Christopher Caldwell are going to be dead before the shit really hits the fan, and he won't care anyways because he'll have enough money to buy himself enough comfort to ignore it. So when people tell you not to listen to young people who are getting agitated and pissed off and getting arrested and doing demonstrations— Tell them to go fuck themselves and then get yourself arrested with the young people. Uh, yes. <laughs> that's, right. No, that's that's exactly right. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, that was a fun one. Let's uh, roll into, we got a few events that we wanted to shout out. Um, I don't really have anything on the agenda, but I saw you've got some exciting Law 2 stuff coming up on the calendar. Yeah. So there are, there's a lot of stuff going on right now in terms of tenant organizing around Los Angeles. And one of the best ways that folks can get involved is by showing up at a local meeting of the Los Angeles Tenants Union. So next week, there are three locals that are going to be meeting up. Uh, the Hollywood local is meeting on August 12th from 7 to 9 p.m. And the address for that is 6500 Sunset Boulevard. 90028. Again, that's the 
Hollywood Local is meeting up on August 12th from 7 to 9, 6,500 Sunset. Uh, the Northeast Local is meeting on August 14th from 7 to 9. They all meet from 7 to 9. It's pretty fun. Um, at Avenue 50 Studio up in Highland Park. And the address there is 131 North Avenue 50, 90042. Again, 7 to 9 p.m. on August 14th. Avenue 50 Studio, Highland Park. Address is 131 North Avenue 590042. And then Vibe Local, which is in uh, the heart of Koreatown, is uh, they're meeting up on August 15th from 7 to 9 p.m meeting on the 10th floor of the UTLA building, which is on the corner of Wilshire and Barendo. And the address there is 3303 Wilshire Boulevard, 90010. Again, that's the Vibe Local for the Los Angeles Tenants Union is meeting on August 15th from 7 to 9 on the 10th floor of UTLA building on the corner of Wilshire and Barendo at 3303 Wilshire Boulevard. So as always, if you guys have any events uh, that you want us to publicize, take part in, or generally be made aware of, please visit our website at www.groundgamela.org or visit our Facebook page and send us a message there, or just send an email over to podcast at groundgamela.org. Thank you very much. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I'm just going to end on the tagline I'm still really, really liking. Rise up, fuck that shit. Rise up, fuck that shit. Y'all have a lovely week.